Ready? Yep. Let's go. Healthy, healthy rainbow. Beautiful fish. <laughs> you dropped him, dude. Stud <laughs> on the squall, baby. Oh, squall. baby. Bo-tastic. Right there. I got it, I got it too. Oh. He barely puts in the net. But first, a word for our partners. Alaska Rodco, Alaskan Handmade Rods. National Wild Turkey Federation, South Sound Strutters, your conservation organization for Washington State turkey populations and habitats. Heather's Choice, healthy, flavorful, dehydrated meals for the backcountry. Use our discount code, theyoungguides15, to save at checkout. Shell Art Studio, original Alaskan-focused art. Slay Jays, it ain't all about the catching. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton. And I'm Kyle. And on today's episode, we have on Don New. Don is the director of Hatchery Wild Coexist. And uh, we actually have Don on today because we had somebody in one of our reviews um, suggest that we reach out and talk to him and kind of get to know a little bit more about Don, uh, Hatchery Wild Coexist, and kind of uh, what they stand for. So it's really cool to be able to have a listener suggest uh, guests and we can reach out and they, they're happy to hop on with us. Um, but yeah, we want to get to know a little bit more about Don, a little bit about Hatcher Wild Coexist and uh, spend some time with them. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Don. Thank you. Great to be here. For sure. So let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Uh, how'd you get into fishing and uh, how'd you get to where you're at now? Okay, well, um, my entire family was born in Dallas, Texas, so we're all Texans, uh, but we uh, we used the term escaped Texas when I was about in second grade, ended up on the West Coast, and uh, always fished. We were a bass family, bass and sunfish, that kind of stuff. Got out here, and uh, my dad was interested in getting us into fishing out here, which was real different than the way we grew up with warm water fishing. Uh, fast forward a few years, uh, I ended up having a real good buddy in junior high and high school that was a native Oregonian, and he got me into steelhead fishing on the North Coast. And uh, I was done. I mean, once I learned it, learned at least how to be a beginner, uh, I was really pretty much hosed for any other kind of hobby other than fishing. And uh, so I fished the North Coast, uh, mainly five or six rivers on the North Coast for the last many years. Um, and it, what I liked about it was the were the variables and learning things, learning knots, learning. Uh, you know, I, I was going back and forth between Deschutes fly fishing and North Coast at that time. You always everyone drifted. No, they were, didn't know what a you know a bobber and a jig was at that point. And uh, so it was fun to learn those different styles. Uh, again, fast forward, my beyond fishing, my desire was to be a designer, uh, to be a marketing communications guy, a branding guy. And so I went to the University of Oregon uh, on, a, on a scholarship. And it uh, that's where my life shifted a lot into uh, designing things. In, in those days, it was a lot of print, a lot of logo designs, those kind of things. And I 
I uh, graduated and quickly got into a freelance business in Portland when Portland was really at that time thriving with lots of agencies and design firms. So it was really a a fun run. And as uh, I, I actually in about 20 years grew the firm, we our staff varied from about 50 to 65 people. So we got big and uh, it started to lose uh, fun, except for having fishing clients. Uh, I worked with Gary Loomis early on. I did his first, and when I say I, I mean my firm, but I was still involved in the design part. I had a, a manager that ran the business, but so I worked with Gary on his first six or seven catalogs, uh, Buzz at Lure Jensen, got involved in a lot of things like the North Coast Rendezvous. Um, I got I got really cool in my 30s because I kept being brought onto these boards. And I thought, wow, I, I must be a really cool guy. Well, I realized I was being brought onto these board of directors positions so they could get free design work. And when, <laughs> it took me a, several boards to figure that out, but I really liked it a lot. And at that point, um, that's where that was really in the genesis of Hatchery Wild Coexist. That was probably the beginning because um, this was in the 80s. Someone from California decided to buy some property or they were going to buy some property on the Deschutes and build condos on it. And at that time, uh, Governor Atia, who was an avid fisherman, uh, said, nope, not going to happen. So we formed this board called the Oregon Wildlife Heritage Foundation. And I was brought on the board, uh, Buzz was on the board. Again, I was brought on the board so they could get free stuff. I mean, it, was, it wasn't, the, that was about it. It was for sure. So uh, Atia picked up the phone, called his good buddy that owned Blitz Weinhardt at the time and said, we gotta buy this property. And we raised, uh, I don't know, a million or so dollars, million and a half dollars and bought the property and kept it public. And that was the last time anyone really messed with the Deschutes that I know of. I'm sure there have been overtures. But um, in all of that, this Oregon Wildlife Heritage Foundation was formed with pretty pretty cool people. You know, Willie Boats, Willie Ellingworth, those guys, and Buzz, and a bunch of Loomis, all those folks formed this um, organization. And we had to fund it some way to, to be uh, relevant because we were we would fund, say, uh, a revamp on a hatchery. And we'd raise the money, pay for that if the state wouldn't. So we kept paying for uh, boat ramps for people that weren't getting around very well. There were a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans at that time were trying to fish in wheelchairs. So we did some pretty good things, but we needed money. So we started the North Coast Rendezvous. And uh, we worked on that for 15 years and couldn't really make any money. It was out of Tillamook. So we turned it over to uh, Jack Smith, who's a guy in Tillamook and the president of CCA and Tim Juarez. And they made it into a great fundraiser. So fast forward 30 something years, older than you guys. I don't know why I'm on young guides. <laughs> I got kids your age. Anyway, so fast forward 25 years. We keep going to this event once a year. A lot of us only see each other once a year. And we're going we're getting the snot kicked out of us by the societies. The um, You know who the societies are, the, the uh, wild fish guys. And uh, they were just killing us with lawsuits and shutting down hatcheries and influence a lot of decisions. And we just said, we got to do something. This was five years, six years ago. Came back the next year. We said, we got to do something next year. We got to do. So finally, three and a half years ago, 
uh, Dave Champ, who's a well-known guy in, in Oregon, and uh, Jack Smith, who's the CCA guy, said, look, we got we got to we got to do something. We got to name it something. We got to brand it. We got to get it out there. And we want you to do it. And at that point, I'd sold my firm. I was goofing around, just fishing a lot. And I, yeah, let's go for it. So the strategy that I advised, and this has been three years, a little over three years now, was that people have tried this before. I don't know so much in Washington. I, I'm sure it has. But in Oregon, there have been a couple of efforts on the hatchery or hatcheries are, aren't the enemy folks. Let's talk about habitat. Let's talk about cormorants. Let's talk about uh, predators. Let's talk about anything other than hatchery as being a problem with abundance, especially with uh, a problem with wild fish. So we launched it by going to businesses. I started with Sportco uh, and uh, Emporium up north they said oh, of course we'll do it well and there was no money involved we'll just we'll lend you our logo so you can have credibility and people will believe in you so i came down to fisherman's marine then i went up to three rivers um then i came back down to stevens and just got stevens marine and just got all the boat guys all the rod guys and a lot of uh, professional guides and at this point we have about 260 that allow me to use their logo any way i want a lot of them were people i knew they trusted me so we got credibility over that first year. We launched it at the uh, Portland show, Sportsman show. We, we created credibility by being aligned with businesses because a lot of our messaging was, folks, this is an economic situation, not just a bunch of selfish sport fishing people that want to go out and kill fish. This is, you know, when you shut down a run on a river, you shut down the little Barton store down the corner. You shut down. It's just not people being disappointed they can't fish anymore. It's a lot more than that. So um, as this was all happening and as people pretty much got to know us, um, a very large Los Angeles clothing company came out with a, a film called Artificial. And it was a, it was a pot shot at Patry's. And basically, uh, there were... Um, we saw within six months, there were 2.2 million people that watched that movie or a portion of that movie at, through YouTube and Vimeo. We thought, man, we have to address this because we'd started on the economic impact study, raising funds for that. We said, no, we got to deal with this artificial thing. So we came out with a video. It's on, on the Hatchery Wild Web our, uh, YouTube page uh, called Beneficial. And it just takes on eight of the points that they tried to make uh, of why hatcheries were bad. Uh, one of the most egregious and the one that bucked me the most, because it was made by filmmaker, the, the production company was called Liars and Thieves. It was a couple of $3 million production. We had we had $14,000 to do our, our two videos. The, the first one, we used about 5,000 of that. Most of it I can do, I'm just not an editor. But um, anyway, the, uh, the worst parallel was that they conflated open pen farms, like they have up in the Puget Sound that were so problematic, with hatcheries, in-ground hatcheries. They, and they saw the, the, the nasty, ugly, deformed fish and the guts and the blood and the water. And I was at the opening uh, of that, the premiere in Portland at, at Patagonia, and people just ate it up. They just, and they came away, and I, because I had talked to a lot of people, they came away going, oh, hatcheries are horrible. Did you see those hunchback fish and those the blood, the guts and the water? So they made a big mistake doing that. And there were six or seven other mistakes they made uh, in that film. So we attacked 
six or seven of them in a little film called Beneficial. It's 12 minutes. And um, I think it did its job. I, I follow Patagonia pretty closely, and, and they stopped with this nonsense of making people think that hatcheries and pens were the same, that, that uh, you know, they just haven't done that much more. And there were a bunch of others as far as the effect on wild fish and so forth. So we got that out of the way. And then we started uh, fundraising for an economic impact study for hatcheries in Washington and Oregon. And we got a, a very good uh, firm called Highland uh, Economics in Portland. They gave us a $30,000 estimate to do this thing right. Of course, that was <laughs> it, we didn't just pull that out of our banking account by any means. So it took us two years to raise that. We did a, I did a GoFundMe kind of thing personally, and we raised the funds and uh, pulled the trigger on that. And it's just been out the last two months or so. The cool thing about it, it's big, it's voluminous. It's 60 or 70 pages, but you can go in if you're in Coos County or you're up in Washington at one of the hotspot counties. There are six in Oregon, six in Washington, and there are abstracts for each of those. So when a lawmaker has an issue uh, he can pull that abstract or go into the economic impact and know down to the dollar uh, what the impact will be if they shut down a hatchery or curtail, say, a summer program, a steelhead program like they tried to do on the North Umpqua at uh, Rock Creek. Uh, that was a great success story. We when we inundated that decision that ODFNW Commission made. They they made a decision to shut it down and, and toss those seventy six thousand smolt into a lake somewhere so they could die. Uh, and two weeks later, after inundating uh, Salem with emails, there was a court injunction and then some pissed off tribes and they reversed their decision. And those those fish are in the ocean right now getting bigger. So that's the kind of thing we're trying to do. That's the genesis of the organization. Uh, what's on tap now is we're really taking on broodstock as a great idea. Uh, there's a primer Twelve page primer on the website Hatchery Wild Coexist that you can flip through on the site or you can print it out. It just shows the basics of of broodstock, and we think that it's such a simple idea, but people uh, people sometimes don't understand what it's all about. And this will help, and it'll help reinforce people that do know about it. But we try to keep a lot of things going. We're going to do a broodstock film as soon as we raise enough money to do that, and then we stay on the social stuff, uh, Instagram. Uh, Facebook pretty heavy. Uh, we're trying to be approachable, no nonsense. Uh, I do a lot of presentations, a lot of like Fish Hunt Northwest with Dwayne England and and Outdoor GPS, those kinds of things. We're we're trying to stay in front of people with that and be the the voice of logic. And in no number one, our we we love wild fish as much as anybody. It's mm -hmm. not that we're discounting that, but we also believe the science, and that is that. I mean, this is something you can ask any wild fish Nazi. So we shut down the hatcheries and over the next few years, uh, what are the Southern resident orcas gonna eat? What's the ocean gonna kill these ESA listed fish? Well, you know, are these, are these hatchery fish buffers for all that? Aren't we going to eliminate wild fish that everyone really wants? I'd, we'd all love it if the rivers were teeming with an abundance with wild fish. Mm -hmm. Take out those uh, those little brothers, those big brothers that get in the way with a you know an orca is not going to be selective. So you take a uh, hundred hatchery fish out of a uh, uh, you you know in an area around those orcas, they're they're going to eat whatever they need to eat. 
Um, so I think we're we're making some headway on uh, what where the logic is and where the science is. We've got some there's some really good scientific studies on the website and papers, peer-reviewed papers that uh, we really hope people will read because you could. It's it's hard to argue with someone who really knows their stuff and and trust me, you guys know these these society guys, uh, some of these groups uh, that like to sue us uh, or sue the state or sue anybody they can sue to get their way. Uh, they know their facts and figures. They're just not right. Yeah. You know, tell me that uh, that uh, on one hand, a hatchery fish is uh, a wild fish is superior to a hatchery fish because of genetics and their DNA. Right. That's one. That's that. And and there are differences, minor differences. But tell me that the argument that uh, that the hatchery fish are running the wild fish off the reds and hurting the wild fish populations that those two don't jive you know an aggressive is is the fish aggressive or not is it one superior over the other and we, we just like to point out a lot of the things that are that are anecdotal and well i was standing on the bank one day and i saw a, a big old clip fin fish come in and and blow off a couple of uh, uh wild fish I, that's not science yeah <clears throat> so where do you so why um, does hatchery wild coexist? Uh, but like, like what is their process or thought process? I guess why we should keep hatcheries versus get rid of them and focus on wild populations. Well, that was what I just said. If you if you phased out the there's a paper, and I'm sorry I can't cite it uh, on the site, but if you phased out the hatcheries right now, you're not going to phase out a, a, a sovereign tribe hatchery. Uh, trust me, you guys know that. So, but if you phased out all of the uh, ODFNW and Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, if they all shut down their hatcheries and, and it was completely phased out, um, what what is the ocean, a bad ocean condition going to affect? What are the uh, sea lions going to affect? What are the cormorants going to affect? What are the culverts going to affect? Well, they're going to affect wild fish because you don't have any you don't have any hatchery fish anymore. Yeah. So, if the popular and the the last document I read, and I think it's on the website, is that between two and three hundred years, if you did that, you might have a wild fish population in abundance in some rivers. And we're not saying that all rivers should have hatcheries on them or bring hatchery fish uh, into the system at all. I think the in basin. The, the uh, trend toward in-basin fish in, with hatcheries and, and making hatchery fish with in-basin makes a lot of sense. It's a it's a big deal. I think that's smart policy. Yeah. Uh, not having races, straight races at the hatcheries and having them be circular, that makes sense. Yeah. So the upgrades, uh, you know, Gary Loomis has been working for four or five years on better feed for hatchery fish because he was... He was certain, and I and I bought into it. I think it's true that, you know, we were cutting corners on feed, so the smolt weren't as uh, vital as they could have been when they were ready to get in the water and go. Yeah, I mean, your, again, okay. wild fish would that would be the best. Yeah, what is it like? What is your? Are you focusing on all the You know, the Pacific salmon and the steelhead through uh, hatchery. Uh, wild coexist, or are you guys mostly focusing on a specific uh, fish species? Salmon steelhead. Salmon steelhead. Uh, 
Cool. Yeah. And there's lots of there's lots of pressure that comes from NOAA and some of these societies at times to ESA list certain fish, uh, like I think it was the spring spring salmon on the uh, on the north coast. And the problem was there there the spring and the fall fish were intermingled, and it was kind of hard to figure out the numbers. And I'm not real astute in this particular area, but sometimes the the corners get uh, kind of made and decisions get made uh, before there's really uh, great data there to to rationally make that decision. But where where there is real uh, concern with a population, uh, we get behind that. I mean, what I wouldn't mind going to our our folks. We've got I think eleven thousand fans right now, and if there was a good reason to shut the river down because of the run, I think most of them would just say yeah. Now there's always going to be a certain number, but what what the what the policymakers and the lawmakers and the key influencers don't quite understand that we as sport fishers and and hunters. We give more time than anybody. We give more money than anybody. We care, and I can tell you, tell you for sure, we care more than anybody. But it isn't so I can just drive for an hour and a half and go catch a steelhead tomorrow. That's not why I care. You know, I care for, we have a lot of focus on little kids, and, and uh, we do a lot of things with kids. And it's, that's what, that's the future. And, you know, I want my grandkids to be able to do what I did when I was a little bitty guy. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's what's important, but no, we don't focus. I mean, salmon steelhead, that's it. Uh, that's our focus. So here's a question. Um, I've heard it come up in conversations that, uh, that salmon from a hatchery are kind of like a lazy, you know, a lazy cousin of the wild fish. Uh, what have you guys found that, uh, like, have you found anything that scientifically, differentiates uh the wild fish and the coat and like the um the hatchery fish the vitality kind of yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, it's funny there over the years there have been a bunch of people that including some pretty well-known people that they would say you know when i get a hookup on a wild steelhead versus a hatchery steelhead i know immediately first head shake first head shake if it's wild yeah I so you tell me if over all these years with all the with hatcheries for a hundred and something years that there's there are any real wild fish. Yeah. You know, so on the on the Facebook page right now, I think you have to scroll down a little bit, but there's a study uh, that was done, or no, a, 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 it's no I think a no DFNW guy, really bright guy with a genetics background. And it's really good. It's a really long article, but the 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 difference in the DNA between a hatchery fish and a, most wild fish is insignificant. It's tiny. So, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's hard to uh, determine uh, how vital a, a fish is, wh- if, whether it has a fin clip or not, because there are lots of fish out there that that are mm-hmm. hatchery fish that haven't been fin clipped. So it's a pretty good conundrum, but you know what, in my opinion, and I can represent hatchery wild, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. It really doesn't. We need to keep fish swimming in these rivers. And until someone comes in, in with this incredibly valid data that says hatchery, it's the opposite. 
because you got you have uh, biomass. If you take out the atrophies, there's a lot of biomass there that goes away. If you eliminate, like on the Clackamas River, we all bought into 30 years ago, ODFNW said, hey, we're going to eliminate a, a 20,000 run of summer steelhead. And, and I caught a lot of those, not, not all of them, but I caught a few of them. We're going to eliminate that and the wild fish will come roaring back. So in the on the website, you'll see a, a, doc, a white paper from Ian Corder, who's a science dude, and he did a long study on that. And basically, they eliminated the run. So, so the stores and the restaurants and the fishermen and the economics of that were never, I can't say they weren't, maybe they were, but the state didn't take it into consideration, I don't think. And eliminated the run, fast forward 30 years, the wild fish ha have declined. They're not, they're not significant. You can talk to anybody that's, that lives on the Clackamas, fishes the Clackamas. It's an insignificant number of fish. Yeah. And you can turn around and do the opposite of that with coho, which, and there's some tr pretty cool trends with, with coho being introduced into to some watersheds. And those guys, those guys know how to propagate and we just need to do more of it. But yeah, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I think the difference, I don't know the number, the metric for the difference in vitality between a hatchery fish. You know, I, I have to tell you that I see a lot of fish that are, that are posed with as wild fish that are just gorgeous. I'm predisposed. If someone says wild fish, that's a gorgeous fish. How do you know that's, how do you know that's wild yeah. fish? That yeah. fish may have grown up at the hatchery and left the hatchery. So again, it doesn't make any difference. It does to to our naysayers because they they think that wild fish are, are a detriment, and I think in some studies they've shown that, but not very many. That's that's a good point too because I just uh, I got the opportunity to grow some coho from the local hatchery and and I work at an elementary school so we grew up all the kids got to watch oh, yeah and so when I dumped them the other day. That they didn't give me any direction on like if I could fin clip them or anything. So I just left everything and dumped them in. And like those are going to go into the river and this specific river doesn't get a lot of coho back. So I figured the coho that are going to come back or either, you know, if they come back will be yeah. from, from there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. You really don't know what's, you know, especially if you get hatchery fish intermingled intermingling with wild fish and then you know they're, they're just going to hatch naturally and go out like yeah. how are you going to tell yeah we released uh twice a year out of the trout creek acclimation pond just an hour from here into the malala river released fifty thousand smolt on saturday and that was the the last one out through the chute was the millionth in 10 years so we do a hundred thousand for 10 years and it's it's thrilling, and there were kids there to watch it, and you know you feel like you're doing something uh, to to help. You're doing something that's going to make a difference, not just in in people catching stuff, but you get these rivers so that they're drawing people to the river. Then there's an economy behind all that, yeah. uh, and that's what this economic study will tell you too. We we hadn't finished ours yet when the uh, Rock Creek Hatchery uh, last year was they tried to shut down the, the summer program. And now we can go to the county uh, and pull that extra, extract and show economically what that hatchery meant, not just the employees, the feed, the, 
stuff and the visitors. You can go, you can find out what visitors spend at the hatcheries, but then the downstream and upstream little businesses. And and we we have to care about that stuff. You know, it's I think it's important to keep the mom and pop stores open. Um, that's just me. I totally agree. I mean, I've worked in places where a big part of the economy revolves around fishing and around the river. And you, know, you talked about it earlier, but if you get rid of um, that resource and let's just say the population's declined to the point where nobody goes there anymore to fish, not only is that affecting the people that want to go fish it, but like you said, it's affecting, you know, the cafes, the hotels, the gas yeah. stations, all of those people around that area that benefit from having that resource there that draws people to go to that area. Yeah. Do you guys fish buoy 10? Have you fished buoy 10? Out of us. Are you, are you pure fly fishing guys? That's your, what Not you do? Oh, okay. I, not that that makes it makes any difference at all, but uh, you know, one of the uh, best in terms of the economy around fisheries, one of the best demonstrations I ever saw, and it was when there was a lot going on on the Columbia with the uh, and still is with gillnet battles and all that. But uh, ODF and W and Port, you know, those guys have a tough job. W and ODF and W, really tough job. And uh, but they were doing these closures, and there was some testimony. Uh, with the commission, both commissions, and a guy that had a little store, I think it was just outside of Astoria, as I recall, he he was there to, to testify. And he said, okay, I'm going to show you the business I do when Bowie 10 is going. And I, you've probably seen what a circus it is for those fish. And, and it should be. I mean, that's great fishery. But he said, I'm going to show you what a day looks like during the Bowie 10 season. And he had his receipts from his little store and they were all taped together. And he went around the whole room with wow. these receipts and said, this is one day. And he said, the river closed the next day. Here's my receipt. And he, he showed one or two receipts in his hand. And to me, that was, that's economics 101. Now, if the closure was based on a quota being hit and every, and people want to gripe about that, let them gripe that, you know, we, the quotas are set, the numbers are set, but when you, there has to be some emphasis on long-term with a display, a demonstration like that, that, you know, if we, if we let the, if we let the runs go the way of the Southern resident orcas or any other uh, declining fish or mammal, then that's what it's going to be. It's going to be two receipts and one, you know, versus one big one. And, and that's economics. So I, it, it is a balancing act, but you know, my sense is that the more we can educate the lawmakers and the key influencers, the better we'll be because they'll they'll really understand there's more than just a bunch of hobbyists. It's like if someone said we're going to shut the golf course down, <laughs> you know, so what? But you know, boo-hoo. Well, that golf course has 30 people working for it and it's got outlying businesses and all that. So don't give me this emotional, you know, you you guys are just uh you know, stingy fishermen. Yeah. We love to fish, but my gosh, got to think about everybody else that doesn't fish. That's a really good point. And the, and people forget how much money that, you know, outdoorsmen bring into uh, oh. conservation, uh, yeah. local, like you're saying, local businesses. I mean, a lot of money in states is funded, you know, their, their state-ran programs are funded from people buying outdoor equipment. 
yeah. and licensing and stuff. Yeah, it uh, this uh, study you can go through and you can see what the economic impact of the uh, down to real granular levels, but but uh, anglers in Oregon, Washington, it's something like seven or eight hundred million. You know, mm -hmm. it's under a trillion, but it's not a small number. And mm -hmm. you know, we we sometimes think, okay, well the our state senator or state representative are really sidetracked on you know in, in homeless or uh, education, really big things, big important things. But that doesn't mean we can't judiciously get in front of them. We don't have to be obnoxious, but we are. When, when we put out a bulletin for people to send an email to Olympia or Salem, our guys do that. The yeah. other metric that the, that the people in Olympia and Salem need to understand is we as a group vote. I mean, at a, at a, a we care and we vote. And I think in, in other segments, other groups, I, th I think our, our voting percentage, and it's nothing I know for sure, it's just anecdotal stuff, but is that we really vote and we, we have to continue to vote and testify um, in front of these commissions and go to Olympia and Salem and let them know. They tried to shut down Lieberg Dam down here uh, a couple of years ago, and we showed up in huge numbers and they, they figured it out. They figured how to get it funded. Yeah. If you don't do it, it just goes by the way wayside as a line item. You know, all of us have favorite congressmen, state congressmen, or, or representatives that, but they're so it's a small few, and it's usually the ones that fish or hunt. Yeah. But you gotta you gotta glom onto those guys. Yeah. So all that data that you guys use, whether it's you know fish data, economic impact statements, um, who gathers that for you, and 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 how do you guys use that? So the uh, Highland Economics, uh, and they're, they're not necessarily an environmental uh, outdoor kind of a research firm. We just challenged them to basically uh, to come back with data that shows what the impact is of, of fishermen. And that's everything from gasoline to restaurants to, to hatcheries. Uh, and um, they came back and said, here's the number it's going to cost. And it took us a couple of years to get, get the money to them. but uh, then it was vetted before it got published and we made sure everything was accurate. And I can't tell you of one instance where we've gotten any pushback from anyone. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we have it because it was really professionally done. Um, of course, the white papers and the research and the peer peer reviewed stuff, I get that all the time. And I just repurpose it on the, on the social stuff. Uh, there were some great things done up in hood river. Uh, just in the last five or six months about impacts, anything that is says that supports the narrative that hatcheries aren't the enemy, I'll post up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of cool down here. You guys had, uh, now I'm saying you guys, are you guys Washingtonians? You're in Alaska now, but. I'm a Washingtonian. Yeah, I'm from Washington, yeah. Yeah, so you guys had Herschel. Remember the, the sea yeah. lion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we had we had 16 or 18 Herschel's. Uh, this is three or four years ago, but it's been there for years. But they, those 1,100 pound sea lions sat right at the bottom of Willamette Falls in Oregon City and just sucked the steelhead down. I mean, you could watch them. They'd bite the stomachs out, throw them, go to another one. They were just mucking around. And we finally, uh, ODFW finally used the word extinction, I think two or three years ago. 
they used that word and people just flipped out. Uh, even the even the societies flipped out over that 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 are generally not going to get in the sea lion relocation program. You know, it just doesn't fit their their uh, uh, supporters. Let's say they're big money people. Don't you know they love sea lions because they have eyelashes. Sorry, I'm <laughs> I'm editorializing, and they don't live on the west coast or not yeah. down here. So uh, or up here they. Um, so they use the word extinction. The run was at 524, 520, still ESA listed fish. Now those are thousand dollar fish, fifteen thousand dollar fish. Who knows? You know, it's the programs. So they use that word. It it worked through channels, it worked through the feds, it worked through NOAA, the state. And they finally uh, got permission to euthanize a bunch of them. And uh, they did it quickly, not a lot of fanfare. They were trapped and then tugged down somewhere and given a shot. But uh, the run the next year was 2,400. So it's wow. that kind of relationship and, and metric relationship between a predation situation where the run was and what it, now there can be ocean conditions, there can be healthier, small, who knows, but still that's pretty, pretty amazing that it would go to that. And I don't know what the last count was, but we got to do more of that. I mean, when the, 30 years ago, when sea lions were uh, protected through the Marine Mammal Act, uh, there were 30, the numbers range between 30 and 30, or wait a second, yeah, 30 and 35,000 on the West Coast was the number, and they got protected. It's, they're now at 300,000, and in Oregon, they're running up into freshwater little creeks and sitting in funnels and eating up steelhead and coho and, and fish as fast as they can, but at least we eradicated that situation and maybe that number will will mean something to people as we say okay why do we need 300,000 sea lions or i don't know what the number is on cormorants i don't know what the number is on some of these predators but uh you know we get louder we get more scientific we deal more in numbers then maybe we can start making some changes in this cuz those populations are going crazy yeah and they're just you know the numbers on what uh, on the smolts those those fifty thousand that we released on Saturday probably half of them are gone, and hopefully you know we'll get one or two percent back. But the gauntlet they have to run to get out to the ocean. Then they get in the ocean, and then they get big, and then they're <laughs> they got the nets to deal with. So these are pretty spectacular fish, but but it's done incrementally in the best little ways we can. Even if we had a lot of money, we couldn't affect change any any better than I think than we are now. You know, one thing about the uh, about our community is that, well, let's see, there were set, I think, eight uh, organizations uh, in Oregon and Washington signed up to Hatchery and Wild. It took a while. Uh, and so they're, they support us, which was amazing because you don't see that happen. There's a lot of dissension uh, between some of the bigger clubs and some of the bigger organizations fighting over different things. And I think philosophically, that's one reason we don't get enough attention is that we seem fragmented. The NFS guys and the conservation anger guys are really congeal. I mean, they're they're together. They're they're on a mission with money. And we we look like we fight all the time, which we in, at, at some level we do, you know, I'll, 
I'll say, well, I think treble hooks are good. And some other guy will say, well, sidewashes are are better. You know, you, you need to find something to argue about at some level. And, uh, you know, one of the nice things right now is that Hatchery Wild is being asked to be, uh, to have our uh, logo on joint letters from people. So, you know, you've got the Northwest Steel headers that have run around for know, 50 something years established. And uh, we don't feel competitive with them at all. Um, and there are a bunch of them like that, but the more we're together, the better it'll be. So they'll, they'll see us as bigger numbers, more voters. So you talking kind of on that topic where, you know, you're, you're joining forces with people to get, get bigger numbers, to get the word out there when, in terms of things like, you know, fighting the sea lions and those things that are affecting fish populations, both hatchery and wild, do you ever work with any of the organizations that promote wild fish um, and you tend to butt heads with? Is there ever a time where you guys get together and work on things as as one? Well, we, uh, we are determined to be a one issue organization. So you could, you could bet that if we have 11 or 12,000 fans socially and we haven't bought them, we just got them organically. We didn't do these services and things they're just they're really great people if you ask that group uh do you like gill nets they'd say no if you ask them if they like sea lions they'd say no uh if you ask them if they love wild fish they would all say of course they'd say what i just said we'd love we'd love it if they were all wild fish but then you get into uh royally water with you know with situations where I think it was uh, Northwest Steelheaders a couple of years ago joined with the Native Fish Society on a program called I think Hundred Thousand, but it was it was Native Fish Society and Northwest Steelheaders were going to join together and promote a hundred thousand new fish into the system, and it it blew the organization it blew Northwest Steelheaders up because people were so adamant and and really detested. Native Fish Society so much that it it did the it the, the organization went backwards for a while. I think they're doing fine now. I'm not sure. I don't pay much attention, but um, you have to be really careful. If if I announce tomorrow socially that that uh, Native Fish, Fish Society has decided they don't like gillnets, and I think s- smartly they don't chime in on that. But if they did, and I said we're going to get together with them and and try to First of all, they'd say, "Okay, you're off topic," because I've made that mistake. You're you're out of you're out of your wheelhouse. Don't do that. Secondly, I'm out of here. I I hate the Native Fish Society, and there's a lot of that. You know, I took some pretty good shots at Patagonia early on. Um, one of the work, one of the most fun ones was because they it was really that artificial thing was really going around. I did a post that showed the the West Coast, and it showed uh, Patagonia's headquarters in Los Angeles. And it showed Portland, or so Oregon and Washington, and it said something to the effect that aren't aren't we glad that a that an outdoor um, clothing maker is is helping us run our fisheries? Something to that effect, and mm-hmm. it just lit people up. They you know they they were burning Patagonia stuff and sending me pictures of their you know their three hundred dollar fleeces being burned and stuff. And and that's not what I I was just trying to be a little ironic in saying that. So. That's a long way of answering your question. I suppose if the situation was right, 
I got a note uh, yesterday from a guy that said, look, the only way this is going to work is if we team up with a commercial fisherman. Well, now CCA has been fighting the commercial fishermen for, since they started in Oregon and Washington, 15 years over the gillnet issue. So I haven't answered that the guy's question yet, but if I announced next week that, yeah, we're getting into, uh, we're, we've invited the commercial uh, fleet representative to join us in something, blah, blah, blah. Half the, half the people would go away and it would affect CCA as well. So I have to be really cautious about that fine line. I think it's true. I think it's absolutely, I mean, who, who more would want the, the, the hatcheries to stay alive than, than the commercial fishermen? Yeah. Open, you know, the guys in the ocean and in the river. Now, I don't believe for a minute they should be gill netting in the Columbia, but I'm not going to take those positions through Hatchery Wild. I'll take them through CCA all day, but Hatchery yeah. Wild, and I'm just one voice. Uh, and I think the reason we've gotten some traction the way we have as quickly as we did is that we, you know, who who's going to fight us on hatcheries? Well, you can name the three or four. If, if, they're, if their organization ends in society, they're going to oppose what we're doing, if it, you know, basically. So everybody else, all those 260 businesses and organizations that are involved. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't make some shifts. And one of them is, you know, number one, we're, if it could all be an abundance of wild fish, that would be the best possible situation. Number two, not all watersheds should have hatcheries on them. You know, that, that's just, especially up here in, up in Washington, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense to, to now, then you have to go through the legislation, how you do that and deal with the pro guides. I mean, it's a mess up in the Puget Sound, Olympic Peninsula. What a cluster. Yeah. Uh, you know, one, one of our board members is uh, Robert Kratzer up there and he's in the middle of that. And it's, it's a hard one uh, all the way around, but you know, we're just, I, I, we don't, it's, it's hard enough to be an all volunteer organization, but I don't like jumping into to the, boiling water like that too much there may be a time i don't know gotcha no i appreciate you breaking that down like that yeah so you you talked about um hatchery coexist you talked about sea lions and stuff what is hatchery coexist doing specifically like uh for habitat res restoration and boots on the ground work um i would say in terms of habitat nothing uh, that, you know, our, our charge from the very beginning was education. We right. don't want to do, we, you know, our, our kids, we, we get involved in kids fishing events, a lot up in Washington, actually, or a bunch this summer, but we get involved in that because we're able to show the movie or give them a brochure or sticker or t-shirt that, that can reinforce, you know, we, their parents talk to them in terms of hatcheries aren't a bad thing. And here's why. So we do that, uh, boots on the ground, it, you know, it's my boots. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I have to tell you, I haven't shown, thrown any carcasses in any rivers in a while. I haven't, you know, cut any sweepers out of the river in a while, but, um, uh, I would say that the, the most boots on the ground are, are two of us that, that go to a lot of the uh, clubs, a lot of the CCA meetings, um, you know, do Dwayne's show or do GPS. We're on GPS quite a bit. So that's, that's a nice thing, but. Um, no, I would say, you know, I, I'm trying to think of anything. Mm -hmm. we, we get involved in a lot of events where we go and, and have a little booth or a little covered place. But as far as habitat restoration, any of that, we, that's, 
Now I can put on my CCA hat and tell you a lot about that. And especially in the Tillamook area, but uh, as far as hatchery wild goes, maybe someday, I mean, there are a bunch of, not a bunch, there are about six people uh, up in Washington that have expressed interest in doing those kinds of things in Washington. Uh, and it may evolve into something, but I, I just don't have a lot of bandwidth. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, <laughs> how, how about the people, um, like the guides that you have, um, you know, that you say you, you put on your website and then that you, you're kind of the voice for them. They kind of be the voice for you. How are you using them? So there are, um, I guess, eight. We got a lot that are that are support us with their logo and, and say good things, all that kind of thing. They're in, key influencers, but there are six or eight that, uh, they keep literature in their boat. There's a little tear off stickers and things that they can, that has all our contact information. Theoretically, uh, these guys, you know, they've got six or eight hours in a boat uh, with clients that vary from folks that really know all about it and some that don't. And so that that's the extension of the education. And uh, there are some really vocal, um, you'll see a few of them in the movie. It's called Hatchery Wild Coexist. You'll see, or hat, sorry, hatcheries aren't the enemy. Um, you'll see a few of them interviewed in there. Uh, I see the the Oregon uh, Robert Kratzer is on our board, and um, Cameron Black. And I'm not sure how much uh, pitch he does in his boat. He's pretty well. They're both intense guys. I wouldn't expect much, but there are, are half a dozen or eight of them that keep stuff in their boats, and then they're connecting uh, folks to me all the time. I had a guy uh, that saw hunt fish Northwest the other uh, two weeks ago that got in contact through someone else through someone else, and we met last week. And he's going to be terrific. He's going. He really knows his stuff. He's been teaching kids to fish through ODFNW to fly fish through ODFNW for 35 years. Um, and that's the kind of connection that we're making so that those guys can jump in and help us figure out ways to uh, educate people. But the education and educate and inform was really the not not go take care of the habitat. Or I'll, I would be willing to bet if, if I put something out socially and said, hey, we'd love to have uh, 50 people uh, in um, Oh, let's in Woodland to work on the cowlets or whatever. We're going to meet at the 7-Eleven in Woodland and and uh, we need 50 people. Six would show up, eight would show up and we'd probably get something done. But I haven't gone into that recruitment thing at all. I've just asked people to repost. You know, we try to have a lot of fun on the Facebook stuff, but there's also pretty meaty stuff. And my challenge is to have, you know, what I see as successful on the social stuff is people you know, they see that we know fishing and we, we know hatcheries, but we also uh, are smart about why we feel the way we feel and they repost our stuff. So if I see that something's been posted 60 times off an initial meme, then I feel like I've been successful. Yeah. Just um, means more evangelize, evangelizing, yeah. So is Hatchery Wild, uh, are you guys like a membership or are you guys like, you're just, you just take donations? You know, we tried the membership thing uh, two years ago at the sports shows, all of the sports shows, and it was an absolute waste of time. 
And I think it was mainly my fault. I'd never done anything like that. I didn't know really how to do it, but I, but it was right on the cusp of COVID and people were thinking about a lot of other stuff and, and it was not a big number. It was, it was $25 or $50 to join. Um, if we do it again, I would do a better job of saying, here's what you get. But right, right now I don't have, I can't say you can get anything other than our uh, backlash newsletter that only our members, I think we have 100 and 260 members or something like that. So they get that, we send that to them, but we send it to everybody eventually. Uh, so there's no real value in being a member right now that, you know, if they get a cool hat. Um, someday we'll think about that. But so far we've been really blessed with uh, big manufacturers. You guys would all know them that at the end of the year are looking for a write-off. And we don't run on a lot of money. I mean, we're, we're pretty, pretty uh, skinny, but we seem to always have just enough. And having just enough means I can do a movie, 14-minute film or video, I can, but I can't shoot it, all of it, and I can't edit it. So I got to hire a, a fission guy that, that loves editing, that knows this stuff and has the, the, uh, professionalism that I'm looking for. I can't, you know, when I buy a hat, I've got to pay something for the hat. So we have to have some sort of, you know, we've got 12 SKUs, I think in our little store. So we got to keep regenerating that. So that takes cash. Um, our other expenses are just the basic things, you know, hosting and uh, domain name and all that kind of thing. But we're running on, uh, I would say, a really, really tight, uh, budget for as much as we get out there to everybody. And there are some the naysayers that don't get that what we're trying to do is educate and inform. They, you know, if you look at the addicts, what, you know, a lot of in the, in the beginning, everyone goes, what, what's this all about? What are they trying to do? Well, I will always say, well, they're entrepreneurs. I may not like their video style early on. I really like what they're doing now. I think they're doing great stuff. What I like about it is if I want to figure out a new way to wrap a K, whatever, I can hit that site and, and learn how to make that wrap with stretchy sting. So that I like a lot of, uh, I like what they're doing. And I think we're kind of going through that same evolution where people really need to understand that we're, we're not going to put a party together and go, you know, cut debris out of some creek over on the North coast or, you know, on the Cowlitz or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so a membership, you got to kind of, if it's just a, uh, I'm proud to be a member of Hatchy Wild Coexist. I'm sure I would have to give away a hat for that or something. Um, and and that would be fun. I just don't, I just can't, I don't have that kind of time. Yeah, totally get that. Yeah, this is a halftime gig that's full-time and the CCA communications director is a halftime that's a full-time job. So you can do the math on that. I'm retired. <laughs> so, yeah. and, I, and I, I'm not complaining for one second. It's everything I'd always wanted. I, once I sold my firm, uh, this is all I want to do is work with people that fish that I really like. I, I made the commitment in the mid nineties that I'll never work with a jerk again. <laughs> you have to work with a lot of jerks when you got a big company. And yeah. most of them were up in Washington, by the way, at <laughs> Microsoft. No trouble. <laughs> no, but I mean, you got to do it to, to feed people. So yeah. um uh, this is a dream for me to be able to do this. I'm meeting great people, getting really fun opportunities. I get in a lot of boats. I mean, it's that's kind of fun. I get to learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, oh, go ahead. 
I would say we've had a really great conversation. We don't want to keep you too long. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure as I'm going back through and listening to this, I'm going to come up with so many more questions. But is there anything else that we didn't ask that you think that we should ask you that you want to elaborate on? Well, I, I do think that uh, there are two things. One is our, our concern is for hatcheries, uh, modernizing, getting better. Maybe some need to shut down. Some watersheds don't need hatchery, shouldn't have or have a hatchery. But, but we care more about the about wild fish and, and what they are, the ones that you know are wild fish, and no one knows which ones are wild fish. Um, and people need to understand that we're not anti, you know, wild fish at all. And the other thing is, if you'll go to our site, our, our whole charge is educate and inform. So beyond that, you know, we, we, we've got a, a troller up your way that is saying stuff like, well, you don't, you don't, no one sees your stuff. All you do is sit around and post up on Instagram all day. And I, I was waiting after three years to who some little snot faced kid would be up in, I don't know where he is, Fork somewhere. But anyway, I wanted, you know, I, this is in my bloodstream now, always has been, and now it's more focused than ever. And I don't take criticism very well. I'm, I'm pretty good with it. I mean, I'm married. I take criticism, <laughs> but, but criticism that has no foundation. You know, this guy looked at, found my resume, and saw that I studied architecture my first two two years in school, and then switched over to applied design, and made fun of me and said, he, "You could, you could never be an architect." You know, you, you how and what does he know? And then the part about, uh, you know, you couldn't even get a job at Patagonia. Well. That this is this is what this character is writing, this knucklehead. And I wanted to I wanted to drive to Forks and drown him. You know, I just wanted to drown the guy. But that's passion and that's fine and everything. But I think part of that, what he was seeing is that uh he was only looking, he's only on Instagram. So you need to you need to go to the website, you need to look at the films on our on our page on YouTube or our, our YouTube stuff. And understand that uh, it's an all-volunteer, one-person organization. So, don't don't tell me I'm not doing anything or touching you know touching the minds of people out there that need to know you know what's going on and and yeah. be better at arguing for hatcheries. That's yeah. it. Absolutely. And, and you're going to get criticism no matter what. You know, if you're doing something, someone's going to say something. And it's like, well, you're saying it over social media, and it, it's. There's not a lot of value to it if that's how you, you know, have to attack someone. So yeah. shit, sorry that you had to face that. that well, uh, you know, I face it with CCA early. I've been working with them for two and a half years and people would say, what do you not do anything? So I did nine case studies uh, for 15 years. And that's just a few of the projects ranging from acclimation ponds to habitat to, to gill nets, you know, things that were very important and put them into a PDF binder. And if I get that, I just say, okay, I'm sending you something. If you would just please read it, you'll see what we do. And this is only a part of what we do. I've never had anyone write back and say, you know, you, you know, they were satisfied. So yeah. with, with this thing, um, what I do on, on, especially on Instagram, I'll, I'll say, okay, you send me your credentials, send me your resume, send me what you're doing now. Uh, if it's uh, germane at all to, to fisheries. And then we'll talk. And uh, I never hear from him. Oh, I heard from one guy. He sent me a, 
he was in a calendar five years ago for something he'd volunteered for, you know, five years ago. So that's kind of show yeah, they're they're sitting on their asses and then going fishing. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're okay. <laughs> I get frustrated. <laughs> no, that's that passion coming out. That's the, yeah. you know you're passionate about it. Well, you know, we're we live. Well, you're in Alaska, so you're even in more of a Disneyland than us down here in Oregon and Washington, but we live in a really unique area. I can drive during time, different times of the year. I can drive two hours and be fishing the um, salmon fly hatch, topwater, or I could go west and be fishing summer steelhead, or I could go south and be on, you know, springers. I mean, it's just a remarkable place, and we're not going to have that. You know, we're there's there's some messy stuff on the Deschutes with warm water and stuff that is really complicated. The refugia deal. So and and we're in that now. Hatchery isn't CCA is in it trying to figure out mitigation on that. But, you know, you've got warm water fish moving into the Deschutes, you know, moving up up. And if the sea lions are going to do it, they'll do it. Yeah. So anyway, there's it's complicated, but it's a it is a dream to be able to live here and a blessing to try to make some difference. That's that's all I'm doing. Absolutely. We are doing Well, we just want to uh, thank you for taking the time. We do have uh, just some quick questions for you. There, It's our rapid fire round. One last big question, and then we're out. I'll do an outro out the door on this one. So Okay. Yeah. Um, so for our rapid fire round, Kyle, you want to take us away? Yeah. Yep. So. I know we talked about you you yourself briefly in the beginning, but we want to want to tie it up here at the end and learn just a little bit more about you. Um, fire these questions off. So, first question is: What is your favorite fish? Steelhead, summer. What is a dream destination to fish for? Chile. Nice. Oh, destination is would be Chile. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to be up with you in Alaska this summer. <laughs> No, I, I've had great experiences in Alaska. The thing about Alaska, uh, and you're guiding, right, up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing about Alaska for me, I was in a base camp for 10 days and we with Teeny, and we fished 15 to 20 hours a day for 10 days, literally hardly slept. And there's a point where you get numb to the next fish you catch. You know, it's just another fish. So we would get selective and the uh, rainbows, the big bows would follow the schools and uh, we would, you know, we'd yank a fly away from a big fish to hook one of those rainbows. So we got into the high stick stuff and getting it done. And that's really fun, but you had to mix it up a little bit. But I'd say I'd love to fish chili. Uh, What's your favorite, uh, you know, riverside snack or meal and your favorite uh, beverage when you're on the river? Do you guys know Dave's Killer Bread? Oh, Dave, yeah. Dave's Killer Bread, peanut butter and jelly. Nice. You can eat it even if it's wet, unless you're fishing salt. But if you're on a, <laughs> if you're in the rain on a, on a freshwater river, you can fish them no matter what, like a sponge. Uh, drink? Did you say drink? Uh, mm-hmm. All on the Deschutes, water, followed by a beer. Uh, in the, uh, I fish a lot of small creeks you know, little creeks running into the Nestucca rivers like that for steelhead in the winter. And the best thing is coffee with uh, Pendleton whiskey in it. Nice. What are you listening to before you go out fishing? 
Willie Nelson. I like it. Yeah. He's not going to be around much longer. We're big. We've seen him all over the country. We love that guy, but he's not. I was in uh, Houston. I'm on the national board for CCA. So I was in Houston last year with my wife and he, we went to Austin to hear music. When we got there, he had a concert and we thought, because we'd seen him two years before and he wasn't doing great. Uh, of course, he's looked like that for 30 years. Anyway, so we <laughs> went up online, <laughs> lined to buy tickets. They were $1,400 a piece. And that was in nosebleed seats. So we passed on that $2,800 thing. But yeah, Willie, I, I, that's my fishing music. Nice. Yeah, if you'd gone there, probably you got a guy on either side propping him up right there on the stage trying to keep him going. Well, he was sit, he sat in a chair at that concert. That, the night we were going to go in Austin, he just sat in a chair, which is really unlike him. But yeah, he's great. Gotcha. Going to miss him. For sure. missing him. And John Prine. I like John Prine. Nice. Uh, you're headed out the door to fish. What's the one piece of gear you can't forget to bring? Gear? Mm-hmm. Like a rod and reel? Or it could be gear, it could be anything. What's the one thing that you, you have to have with you on every trip? Anise oh. and, cr- and krill, depending on what I'm fishing for. I like I it. Fish and edge rods, because they've given us a lot of rods. And Gary, obviously, is, is the edge dude. Um, and so I've been fishing a uh, for steelhead and salmon, their rods, and I can't say enough about them. And the little uh, Vanford spinning reel, it's pretty awesome. Cool. Uh, what's something you're superstitious about when you're fishing? Uh, bead. If I'm fishing a soft bead, I don't like to, I like to wear gloves. Uh, you know, you always read about the sensitivity of the fish has, and I don't smell very good. So <laughs> I wear always wear gloves because I massage in krill or anise uh, into the 14 millimeter. Uh, I'm very superstitious about that. And I don't like to get wet. I used to not care, but it, when you get older, you care if you're walking around in leaky waders or boots or whatever. So I, I, I just cannot fish very well when I'm shaking. Yeah. So I'm careful about that superstitious about good gear that's the thing about when you're younger i can remember you know i just couldn't afford anything by sims couldn't even you know buy a pair of underwear by sims when you get older you realize if i had bought sims back then i'd probably still have them instead of i I had 12 pairs of neoprenes before i got my first pair i told the kids i had to have for my birthday i had to have a, a full set of sims stuff and uh it's just great stuff. It's just well-made. Then they've got good competitors, but uh, going from neoprene to the Sims, pretty cool. Yeah. That's been a few years. No, I, I totally get it. I mean, living up here, you, you've you been up here, you know what it's like. It's when you live in it five minute every day, it's gotta be, uh, be the best. Oh, it really, and it pays off uh, so much, especially when you're working, you know, I can always just go on, start a fire, go, somewhere in the boat and sit you're you're entertaining so you got to stay warm absolutely uh who's the most unique person you fished with don uh well he's passed willie illingworth the willie guy that made willie boats Mm -hmm. He, uh, I met him 38 years ago. He needed a brochure for his new Willie Boat company, and I needed a Willie Boat. 
And so I designed his brochure and got it and got the woolly boat. And then 25 years later, the trailer blew up and I called him and said, I need a new trailer. And he said, I need a new logo. So I designed the Willie logo and got a tra aluminum trailer. Trailer's more valuable than the boat, except that I had him build it with a motor well for the kids so I could put a little kicker motor, you know, drop it through the motor well in the back of the boat. Mm -hmm. And Buzz called and said, Willie's going to die in the next day or so. You need to get down here. So I drove from Portland to Medford, but I pulled that panel out. And he signed, I got him a big Sharpie. He was just about gone. And he, he, I said, would you please just sign this? Well, of course, he didn't just sign it. He wrote, uh, you'll never be a legend like me, but keep trying. And then he signed Willie and the date on it and everything. And I've shellacked that probably six or eight times on the back. So when I run the drift boat, you know, rowing, that big Willie thing's on the back of it. But he was crazy. And Buzz Ramsey's the other, I mean, Buzz is Willie, just because he's entertaining and buzzes because he's so whip smart. I mean, the guy is just, he's magic. I mean, you yeah. fish by guys like him or Jim Teeny with a fly rod with those sink tips in Alaska. I, I matched everything he had, rod and reel, line, his fly, and he would hook six or eight before I could even touch a fish. But then he would see it. It'd only be 35 pounds and he'd pop it off and put another fly on. <laughs> yeah. wow. So I fished with some, uh, Chuck Yeager, General Yeager. He at the rendezvous he my dad was a test pilot in helicopters and general jaeger was you know general jaeger and so yeah. they fished together my dad has passed in the last couple of years and jaeger passed about the same time but he was amazing to watch when he this was 15 years ago but he could see elk we're over on the north coast he could see an elk way like a mile away he'd see the antlers just just the head <laughs> And uh, we we couldn't see it, but he, he could see it. And then we'd get down river and there it would be there. That amazing guy. Yeah, yeah some real characters. That's For awesome. Sure. Um, I think I've dated myself. I no longer can be a young guide, right? <laughs> but you can be, be part of it. Spirit, right? Well, you guys have one of the hardest jobs in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's an upside, sure. But man, it's that's a lot of work. It it's, I think it's cool when you have people that know what they're doing that are nice, but then you have people that know what they're doing and they're not nice. And I've been in a boat a few times. With them. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's cool. Yeah. What's uh what's one word to describe yourself? Uh, resourceful. Love it. I like it. Well, Don, we have one final one to kind of round out the podcast, and we want to hear uh, one of your best fishing or outdoor stories. It can be funny, it can be sad, just, just one of those core memories that stands out to you. Well, I mean, I have a lot of fun, funny, I mean, fishing with Willie, he, he would cast a herring on a treble hook naked out into the bay and a, and a, uh, this is not funny, but a seagull would pick it up and he'd fly off with it and he'd set the hook. You know, <laughs> that's not funny, but that's the kind of stuff you put up with him all the time. But the the, the biggest lesson I ever learned was on the Nehalem uh, five or six years ago during the rendezvous. And my wife and I always shoot it and make a video after, afterwards for everyone to see. And I'd spotted the day before we were fishing and I'd spotted an otter and, and little baby otters, little puppies, pups or whatever they're called upriver. So I headed up, it was it's a little stormy, but not too. I headed up 
and uh, to find those otters and get some pictures out of big 400 millimeter lens. And I looked back down toward the bay, sort of the ocean, and I could see this black cloud coming. And all of a sudden my hat flew off. It was like a tornado. And the wind really started blowing. And I'm in a pretty big drift boat with a motor in the back of it and me in the back of the drift boat and a little bit of weight on front. So I turned the motor, turned it to go into the shore as fast as I could. And when I did, a gust of wind picked it up and I had marked on my finder that we were in 20 feet. I was in 20 feet of water. I just was trying to gauge where I was. And uh, it picked it up and the boat just disappeared underneath me. I mean, it just went away. It sunk. I watched it disappear. I was sitting there watching it. And all of a sudden, all the stuff's bobbing up. And my first thought was where all my camera gear was. It was in a cooler, and I'm about 20 feet from the shore, and I'm thinking, I hope the anchor rope isn't around my foot or my boot or whatever, and it wasn't. So I started swimming, and I had on my all my new Sims stuff the kids got me, so I was just a bobber, you know, I was fine. I just, I was warm. This was in October. Swam to the beach or to this rock, uh, rickrap kind of shore, and people had stopped because they saw it happen. And uh, a FedEx guy helped me get my net and tackle box and all that out, took me down to the marina. And the guy uh, that runs the marina said, well, it's it's a bad tide. It's going down fast. Your boat's just going to be rolling up like a taco. It was, you know, it's an aluminum willy boat. So there's my boat. At that point, it was 32 years old. The kids had grown up in it. And I'm thinking, OK, now what do I do? So I didn't tell my wife anything. I went to we were staying there. I, I walked in wet. It's pouring out there, you know, kind of thing. And and uh, we still had four or five hours before we were going to go to the dinner that night for the rendezvous. And I went back up. The tide had gone down in four or five hours. And I just assumed I was going to see an upside down boat that had been rattling around. Well, it was high and dry on a mud flat with all the rods sticking out full of water. So wow. I go hiking out there and a policeman, people had seen the boat and, and couldn't see the angler. So the, there were about 10 cars pulled off with a police car. And I just said to the policeman, I said, that's my boat. And he goes, well, great. That's good. Good to know. <laughs> so we bailed it out, pumped it out. He pulled it over the flat and I rode it about three quarters of a mile down to the marina. They flushed the motor. It's never run better. The boat's never been cleaner. <laughs> and I broke the tip on one of three rods and that was it. Wow. Wow. And, you know, it, it is amazing how fast a boat will sink. You know, it got down over the gunnels and the mm -hmm. wind just pushed it down. And then you had the, the little Merc pulled it down like an anchor and it just went straight. I just watched it floating away. But yeah, that was, that could have been touchy. But fair warning, if you guys, anybody alone in a drift boat or with someone in it, it can happen fast. This is probably a 30 mile an hour gust. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. I've, I've, Flipped a raft once and I've been in some pretty gnarly wind in a drift boat. So I know it's yeah. tough. Yeah. The other one, the, I'll be quick. The other one was we were floating the Deschutes and uh, Whitehorse sneaked up on us. The four kids, we have four kids, we're in the boat, the raft. I was in the drift boat with my wife. So we went on by and I didn't realize that, oh, is this for kids? O S H I T rock was right at the top of Whitehorse. They hit it sideways. Three kids went out. My son stayed in. He got two of them. And one of the daughters just kept on going down Whitehorse. And I got below her with the boat so we could hold on to her. She had her life vest in her hand. So we floated all of Whitehorse with Margot hanging off the side of my drift boat. 
So we wow. got to the bottom and Sherry was just freaked out by the whole thing because we couldn't get her in the boat, obviously. So we found a, a house and there was nobody there. So we put all the tents and everything up on their front lawn and dried off. And the next morning, the caretaker showed up and he had those those reflective glasses on like cool hand Luke, you know, and he was standing above us. And I told him what happened and he just started laughing. He said, can, can you guys get out of here, out of the front yard in the next three or four hours? Said, sure. But it's kind of it's stuff like that that makes you, you know, respect the water. Yeah. How so I've got a few. Oh, oh, cat time. Is that a is that a a Washington National or is that an Alaska cat? This is an Alaska cat. She's never done that before. She climbed up the entire back of my chair onto my shoulders. <laughs> we like cats a lot. They're fun. Yeah, I get yeah. sucked into uh, cat videos all the time on Instagram. <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah, they are. Well, this has been fun. Thank you. Do yeah, it. Thank anymore. you, Don. If we have a cool announcement or something, I'll call you or send you a text and let you know. And then over the next few months, and at least get it up there, tell you about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds good. Appreciate it, Don. If somebody wants to learn more about Hatchery Wild Coexist, where can they go to find you? I just do a, a any browser, just go Hatchery Wild Coexist, and it'll take you probably to the website. And then you can link to uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff off the website. But our preference would be to, that you go to our general website first because it's got all the information on it. And you can link to the, our latest movie. Uh, you'll see a shot of Buzz Ramsey on the front of that. And you can get you can pretty much get to all the material and content from there. Cool. Perfect. Well, that was another episode of the Young Guides podcast. We just want to thank Don New for hopping on and talking about Hatchery Coexist. Um, you can check him out on uh, all the social medias he listed um, and check out their website. Um, we're just trying to, you know, bring a variety of perspectives onto our podcasts. And uh, so we're hoping that you really enjoy this one and, and it gives you a different look at things at our fish and, and a lot of other things going on in our outdoor world. So thanks again for hopping on Don. Uh, I wanted to do some uh, upcoming events. Uh, on my side, I only have August 12th, Cedar River Cleanup. Uh, you can sign up on Eventbrite. Um, we hope to see some of you there. Uh, April's events for the Young Guides podcast down here in Washington is going to be on pause. I'm looking to pick them, some back up in May. So uh, stay tuned for those. Um, really... Uh, just thankful for everyone taking the time to listen and support us. Uh, we got some new stuff coming um, and that we're excited to bring to you guys. And uh, we keep working hard and, you know, we hope that you guys are enjoying it as well. Um, leave us a like and review on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Um, let us know how we're doing. If we're doing good, let us know. If we're doing bad, you can also let us know. We're always looking for room to improve. So with that, Kyle, what, what events you got coming up? Um, I can't remember when this one's coming out. I know we advertised for our friend um, James Iker and his uh, barrier to entry event. I was not able to make that. That was the night after I got back from my trip, so I was not able to make the drive. Um, but it looked like a cool event. Um, the Bait Shack has their first Ship Creek King giveaway starting May 1st. So whoever catches the first King Salmon Ship Creek this year in downtown Anchorage, you get bragging rights and get a prize package. That's a 
every year thing. Uh, then May 13th is the 11th annual uh, Ship Creek Spring Cleanup. So that is a Saturday. Um, and head on out there, clean up the river, support this urban fishery. We're big about urban fisheries, especially Keaton. Um, so keep these urban fisheries alive. Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting ha- talking about this episode. Uh, you know, Hatchery Wild coexist and how you know, Ship Creek is one of the few remaining if one of the only like handful left of king salmon fisheries in the state of Alaska, where you can actually not only target, but keep a king salmon. So, and their hatchery, they're a put and take fishery. So, you know, yeah. kind of connects this episode a little bit. So keep that in mind. Um, I can't think of any more events. I will say one big announcement. Um, Obviously, I guide for Bear Paw River Guides. We're based in Willow. Um, we guide Willow and a lot of those parks, highway streams. For people that have spent the last several years um, staying at Willow Creek Resort there on the river, um, they will no longer be in operation this summer. Um, so there won't be access to the boat launch. There won't be uh, camping access and there won't be a shuttle service. So you know, if you live up here in South Central Alaska, um, just know that that um, service will no longer be available. Um, there are other places on the creek that you can access and launch boats and, and do what you need to do. But uh, from now on, uh, this this season, that uh, service will not be open. So just a heads up. Good to know. Good to know, Kyle. Um, I just want to also just bring up, you know, follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, show some love. Uh, a lot of things we ask questions, we ask about, you know, upcoming, uh, who you want to see on upcoming podcasts, what kind of content you'd like to see. Um, we kind of have slowed on our YouTube channel, but we plan to post up there, you know, shorts and, and, uh, important content. So, and then on our social media, like I, I did a, um, just this last summer, I did a dry dropper rigging setup you know, how to fish, what to do. Um, so, and, and that's just my tips, right? It's not the, the go-to, you know, solves all your problems, but we want to put out content that you guys can learn from and, and, uh, we hope you appreciate. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it that I got Kyle and you shared a lot. So. Um, yeah. I guess I probably should say one more thing. Um, tonight's podcast um and future podcasts you know we're we will take we don't want to take sides um necessarily we want to be pretty neutral um mm-hmm. as a podcast and so you know just because we had don on and hash wild coexist doesn't necessarily mean that we are supporting hash wild coexist right if anything this conversation has wanted us to you know go to the see the other side and so in the future, I think Keaton and I should try to work, and I think we will be working on, if we bring up issues such as this, the hatchery versus wild fish, we're going to try to get both sides of that argument on. Um, that way, you know, we're not siding with one person. We're not being seen as taking sides. We're going to try to be as neutral as possible and get both viewpoints and, and both sides. So not everything that our guests say um, necessarily reflect the thoughts and the uh, the. Uh, thought process and how we operate at the young guides podcast with that y'all good keaton 
Look, all good. With that being said, this is another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. Get you out of there.